As the children go back, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we have heard you speak in your most holy word. We pray now that you would give us the grace to have an open posture, to be exhorted by it. Lord Jesus, continue to speak, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, into this moment. Open our hearts, our minds, our wills to the work that you have for us to do this morning. And make us faithful keepers and obedient servants of the truth that you have to speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. So begins the early 19th century English classic. Anybody know? Pride Good, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. In this novel, the heroines are two sisters, a Miss Jane Bennett, this side is Jane Bennett, a Miss Jane Bennett and a Miss Elizabeth Bennett, who are on a quest to find suitable husbands. It's an important quest for them because sadly, uh, in their case, uh, there are only sisters in this family. And if they do not find suitable husbands, uh, their family estate, the Bennett estate, will go to a, quote, conceited, pompous, narrow-minded, silly Anglican priest. <laughs> Perhaps not unlike the one preaching this morning. Yes. <laughs> so into their plight enters multiple suitors for these young women, the most important of whom turn out to be a certain Mr. Bingley and a certain Mr. Darcy. At a ball one night, Mr. Bingley takes an interest in the beautiful and modest Jane. Unfortunately, when Mr. Darcy converses with the intelligent and energetic Elizabeth, a mutual dislike is bred Elizabeth has too much self-pride and idealism to appreciate Mr. Darcy's inherited wealth and rank. Mr. Darcy is prejudiced against the lower social rank of the Bennett family. Pride and prejudice. Thus, the great tension of the novel arises. Will the sisters and their suitors be able to win each other's affections? Believe it or not, in our Revelation reading this morning, for us, this is the sort of question that we are presented with. There are, in fact, multiple suitors for our affections. The great, the great question is, who is worthy of our love? Who is worthy of our affections? Let me say... For those of you who've been in the church for a while and see where this is going, that I'm not suggesting that our relationship with the Lord Jesus is merely or primarily a romantic one. All of you married or formerly married folk will know that feeling it that day, that, that our fleeting desires are not a sustainable basis for the most important relationships in our lives, especially the lifelong commitments. Although... I will say that 
if you love the Lord Jesus, the things you care most about, you will feel something for sometimes. And so even for a person myself, who's not very emotionally expressive, <laughs> different than my two-year-old who every time we put food in front of him goes, Ooh, <laughs> I kind of feel that way, but I don't say it. <laughs> even for a person like myself, I am frequently tender towards the Lord. And I have been known to occasionally be weepy. And I think that's appropriate for the sort of relationship we have. But more important than our sentiment, the Lord is asking us today to take stock. Who is it that we are devoting ourselves to? Who is worthy of our time, of our money, of our energy? Who is worthy of our life's commitment? Who is worthy of our ultimate affection? I will take a little aside here to tell you that the book of Revelation, as many of you will know, is an edgy book. In fact, in the part that we'll read in a little bit, it's literally an edgy book. The, the sword of God's word comes out of Jesus' mouth to divide our intentions, to show, to reveal our hearts. What is it that is oriented towards the Lord and what is it that is not? It's an edgy book. So I'm trying to preach today an edgy sermon. Uh, so hopefully you'll be a little bit startled this morning because that's what Revelation is doing is trying to get you a little shaken up to be like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. So maybe, I don't know, you'll be angry with me today or something. And then I'll know that I preached a good sermon on Revelation. Of course, there is also, as part of this aside on Revelation, um, there's also the great hope that we have, right? That as Pastor Matt has exhorted us many times before, that the one verifiable thing is that nobody wants evil to continue forever. Amen? Yeah. Amen. And the one verifiable thing, even to people in the secular world who don't know anything um, in terms of this stuff about Jesus can tell you, uh, is that the world is screwed up. It's messed up. It's evil. And again, nobody wants the evil to continue. And the part of the good news this morning is that Jesus will come and redeem all things. I was grateful for Pastor Chris's word that even in the age to come, it's not like we won't be sad or we won't uh, have uh, things that we're challenged by and struggling with. Ah, that was really helpful for me. I'm like, oh, good. I'll still be a human. And yet the Lord in this life and in the life to come will redeem all things. He will use that evil now and it'll be gone. And then the challenges even to come as we continue to grow in the knowledge and love of the Lord forever, he will use that evil now and the challenges to come to bring about uh, our greatest good, uh, mainly relationship with him. Um, so that's another great part about Revelation, but we're gonna be um, a little more focused today on a particular aspect of this prophetic literature. So to finish my aside on Revelation before we get back to what we're saying, um, for me, the most helpful thing in understanding how to read prophetic literature is to think of it um, in terms of mountain peaks that we see again and again and again. So analogy, um, you're on the front range out there uh, and you're on Mount Hermon over there and you're looking down uh, the mountain range uh, to the peaks, okay? Um, so prophetic literature does this. 
it, it tells you that here's the pattern. God speaks authoritatively. Here's what God is saying. And then we see that pattern in each society or each age again and again and again. So that's the first part. We see it again and again. again. We see the peaks. Um, but then it's actually going somewhere. So it's not just completely cyclical. We're, we're eventually looking down at Mount Everest, the big one. It goes up and up and up. And that is what we have in Revelation. Uh, that is the final judgment, the ultimate judgment. Uh, so we have this, this the, the prophet speaking in the Old Testament. And then we have the greatest prophet, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he kind of ratchets it up big time. And we keep going up and up and up. And we see the same pattern again and again and again, um, mainly um, our um, lack of following the Lord, our rebellion and God's mercy and our rebellion and God's mercy. But but that will come to an end. Eventually, we'll get to the top. Um, so that's how um, a good analogy for reading prophetic literature. So today, um, we're not going to be looking at um, the first society that this applied to, Babylon, um, which was referring to Rome when St. John wrote. And we're not quite going to be looking at the, the final Babylons, um, the kingdoms of the world when Jesus comes back. We're looking at right now. What does this pattern of revelation, what is it challenging us with right now in this, um, in this age, in our society, at our time, in our place? It applied to Rome, it applied to the Ottoman Empire, it applied to the British Empire, and it applies to us in America today, and it will continue to do so. That's how prophetic literature works, okay? Is it about the past? Is it about the future? Is it about the present? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. So we're going to focus on the present today. Okay, little aside on Revelation. Our question is, who is worthy of our ultimate affections? We're about to enter the secular holiday season, as uh, most of us will be well aware. And now, more than any time of year, there is a competition for your attention. There's a competition for your attention. That's why you received 67 extra marketing emails this week about Black Friday <laughs> is because there's a competition for your attention. You see, marketers know that if they can capture your attention, they can capture your affection. Aware or unaware, they're going for your heart. They want you to enter in um, to give them your affection. It's not just retailers, of course. Schools, sports, service organizations all want your attention. Your workplace wants your attention. Frankly, your ministry activities want your attention. And as a family pastor, I hate to say it, but your family and friends, the ones who, of course, importantly, deserve some of your attention, they want your ultimate attention. And I'll tell you why because we all want to be loved, right? <laughs> we want that attention. God gave it to us. It's a good thing, but they can not just get your attention, but they can get your full affection. God made us this way. We're all going to love something. And today, Christ the King Sunday, we take a second to stop and ask, who deserves it? Who will win your ultimate affection? Well, the book of Revelation, especially in this first chapter, is about this fight for your attention 
and your affections. As one modern commentator describes it, the Roman Empire and the Asian society in which the seven churches dwell, which of course are probably referring to the whole church, are pitted against God. Roman Empire, Asian society pitted against God. St. John reminds us that the things that the world loves, what has won its affection, is opposed to what God loves. You say, well, human society is good, and, and, and do we really want to create this division? I found it helpful what St. Augustine says in the city of God to paint the picture. Two cities, earthly city and heavenly city, okay? St. Augustine says, we see then that the two cities were created by two kinds of loves. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt for God. The heavenly city, by the love of God, reaching the point of contempt for self. Indeed, the earthly city glories in itself. The heavenly city glories in the Lord. To us today, I think the clear picture that, again, you'll probably be aware of, is that our secular society is in fact not neutral to God. It thinks itself that way, but it isn't. You see, if God does not get our total affection, the godless world will. Hmm. Satan does indeed get glory when God does not receive our total, our attention and our total affections. Frankly, church, there will be sacrifices. You guys will, uh, as the society becomes more secular, you will start to feel more of the grind against what the Lord Jesus and his victorious kingship requires of us. Maybe this is how I'll get some of you mad. <clears throat> on the right and on the left, there is disagreement between secular society and the Lord Jesus. Both sides, gender and immigration. Abortion, care for the poor. And we've got that choice to make today. Who will we give our total allegiance to, our total affections? The book of Revelation here is to startle us. It's here to shake us up, to reveal these two realities, and to tell us the real reality. Only the victorious king the Lord Jesus Christ alone has won the right to our total affection. The only question then, Holy Trinity, is will we, like the saints that have gone before us, choose a life of singular devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will we become enthralled with a world that only loves itself? Okay, well then, Pastor Matt, how do we do this? How do we give our affection to Jesus, forsaking all others? Revelation chapter one gives us the first step we must take. We must reorient our attention to the glory of the victorious king. We must 
reorient our attention to the glory of the victorious king. The only way that our hearts will be recaptured from any other lesser loves, though good and important, perhaps, the only way that our heart will be reoriented from that is to see the goodness and the gloriousness of our victorious King Jesus. A greater love is the only way that our hearts will be recaptured. We must, once again, reorient our attention to the glory of the victorious King. That is what we have in the second half of Revelation chapter 1. Starting in verse 13, here we have one like the Son of Man. You heard that language in our Old Testament reading. He's standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. What is that? It tells us in verse 20, the seven churches. Jesus is standing in the midst of his church, even here this morning, 2021. His presence is here. And this is what we hear about our victorious king. Verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. St. John is describing God's highest, ultimate, uh, above all others, priest and king, exalted above all the earthly kingdoms as its Lord, who has won the right to rule the world. As we heard in the gospel, not by war. When he came the first time, He was not here to wipe us out, but he was here to win us by offering his own blood to pay for our rebellion against God. My rebellion, your rebellion, the rebellion of all humanity paid for by our Lord. Well, John goes on then, now that we know that, to vividly describe Jesus now wild inexhaustible power, the very power of God himself, the ancient of days, as he sits at the right hand of the Father, and yet is standing here in the midst of his church. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white snow, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, the angels. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That is how we respond to the victorious king. Goes on to say, I am the first and the last. This victorious king is the origin and the purpose of all that exists. Is our Lord not the most glorious, not the most lovable person imaginable, beyond imagination, church? Do we not owe him our total affections? Will we see him as he is? 
and give him our entire affection? Or will we give them to the world? Church, it doesn't make any sense to put our affections in things that are passing away. Why would you do that? Who would forfeit his soul to gain the whole world? Those things do not last. We restructure our lives around the king whose kingdom has no end. That is the thing you can depend on. That's the thing we can put our security in. Our calendars, our bank accounts, who cares compared to the ultimate greatness of Christ our Lord? It's just silly what we do sometimes, isn't it? Oh, man. Hmm. You might be visiting with us today and are new to Christianity or the church. And real simple response this morning. Just hear that good news. Like, we've got something that stable in God, the God known in our victorious King Jesus. And you can, frankly, know him personally. You can follow him practically. You can find in this king the satisfaction of your soul. The inexhaustible worth and glory of this victorious king is what you've been looking for. I've known it. I experienced it. We offer it to you. You can have your relationship with God restored. You can know your creator because he's offering you the forgiveness of Jesus' self-sacrifice on the cross. It's amazing. You can experience the presence of your creator, your redeemer here in the church. He's standing in the midst of the church. How do I do that? Repentance, faith, baptism, be united to his body, the church, hear his holy word, obey him, receive his Eucharistic presence, experience, even if trickle by trickle each Sunday, the very glory of this victorious king. Spend your days loving him, learning him, and leaning into him. For many of us here today, though, it's not that we haven't experienced the glory of Christ. It's not that we haven't tasted his goodness, but it's Pentecost was like a long time ago. And we've been on this um, glorious expansion journey of the church in the season, going out into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, taking the church, taking Jesus' presence out into our neighborhoods. It's been a long journey though. And perhaps, um, our attention has become focused on other things that we've noticed along the way. We've given our attention perhaps to other good things, but lesser things. And they have not only captured our attention, but perhaps they've captured more affection than we set out in the first place to do. So we have a choice this morning, church. We can choose especially in this upcoming season of Advent, to live like the saints, live lives of singular devotion to Jesus Christ, and let all those secondary vocations, though they are important, though they are what God is calling you to do, yes and amen, let all of those simply take a back seat to the attention that we must give our victorious King in this Advent season. The other good news is you're part of the church. You don't have to do this alone. 
practically, I invite each of us today to dedicate ourselves to intensifying our attention to the victorious King this Advent. It starts next Sunday. So you have a week to set your intention. You see, we don't just um, come to love Christ uh, by merely seeing him. That's true. Faith is the starting place. Um, but we come to love Christ because the way God has made us as embodied creatures through our habits, through our practices, through our rhythms. We have rhythms. Everybody's living a certain calendar, right? You got things you do every week, every day, every minute if it's breathing. And how do we orient those to be spiritual rhythms? How do we orient those to set our attention on Jesus Christ as faithfully and frequently as the Lord allows? These habits and practices, our spiritual rhythms, orient our attention toward Jesus and open us to his grace. You never presume upon his grace. I'm not guaranteeing you're going to have a wonderful advent, <laughs> but these are the practices that we do that open ourselves to God's grace to receive from him. So what are our spiritual rhythms that I'm inviting all of you to frequently and fully participate in this advent? The first is obvious, word and table. Good job. You've already done the first step. <laughs> word and table each Sunday. We've even got some special um, word and table, at least word and table related uh, services. We've got our first Friday service, which we told you about. That's going to be really good. My family will be there. We've got then Christmas weekend. It's special this year because Christmas is on Saturday. So we've got Christmas Eve service on Friday. We got Christmas Day service on Saturday. And we got the first celebration of Christmas on Sunday. Whenever the church doors are open, be there. Come whenever the church is open. Give your attention to Jesus this Advent. And uh, excuse me, our staff and our musical team um, and all of you singing your praises and hearing God's word um, is going to be really rich this Advent. We're very excited. Um, at home, we have daily prayer family prayer to do at home. Um, I'll be sending out something for people with younger kids. You can adapt that uh, if you get it or, or there'll be other, uh, there's plenty of resources available. Um, daily prayer, hearing from Jesus this Advent will orient us that we'll hear about next week um, towards Jesus' first coming, uh, getting ready for his first coming, certainly, but recognizing that we're in the same place as the people who are getting ready for his first coming because Jesus is coming back. Uh, so that's how our Advent devotions will orient us um, as well. So daily prayer, family prayer, um, maybe that looks like intensifying your morning prayer, doubling down on that commitment and on your frequency there. Um, and for us, for our family, um, we add in a short evening prayer service, which is um, that resource that especially you parents will get. Um, so uh, daily prayer, family prayer. That's how we turn our attention to Jesus and worship at our homes. Uh, one more, uh, two more, uh, life groups. Um, this is where we turn our attention to Jesus in the body of Christ through fellowship, through discussion about our faith, um, and through praying for one another. Turn your attention to Christ there this Advent. Don't miss a life group meeting. Um, and in those life groups, we do glory sightings. This is just turning our attention to the gifts of the day or the challenges of the day. Where are we seeing Christ's glory in our daily experience? Glory sightings, turning our attention to Christ there. 
last, Christ, uh, our church planner in residence would be happy that I'm reminding you that Christ is going out into the neighborhood. Christ is here, present, and inviting people in, yes, but amidst us, he is also going out into, his presence is also going out into our neighborhoods. The way that we're um, practicing that together is, again, next Sunday evening, the open house. Please come. Please invite your friends. Please invite your neighbors and coworkers, uh, anyone who would be willing to shadow the door of our fellowship hall. You people are so great in welcoming and loving um, people. Um, that's just the great way to start relationally um, with introducing, with noting what Christ is doing in our community. These are the habits and practices that will orient our attention toward Christ this Advent. I invite you into them. Might that mean that you're going to have to make some sacrifices to other good things that you could do this Advent? Not asking you to do more, um, asking you just to consider where is our attention uh, this Advent? Totally worth it, by the way. Totally worth it. Christ is indeed worthy of our attention and our affections. And like Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, we have the opportunity this Advent to give Christ our total affection. Because indeed, he has already given you his total affection. Amen.